glad that's what I'm hearing right now. As I told the band, I wanted them to play this song. And then I went and found all the controversy that's swirling around this song, all the speculation. But I was like, well, we were choosing Come Together as our gala theme, so hopefully it's okay. But it brings me to the topic of our sermon, to the question that, that John asks us to ponder. And, and so I ask you, was he right? Was he right? Should we imagine that there's no heaven? Should we imagine there's no heaven? And, and if we imagine there's no heaven, will that really enable us, equip us to, to live for the moment? You see, John's argument was that if you're dreaming of this far off and, and distant thing, uh, people won't live good lives. And so what we need to do in order to live today well is to stop dreaming about heaven and live for today, be in the moment, and recognize those people that are before us and love them. Some others would say that if you're dreaming of heaven, if you're thinking of heaven, you'll never fight for justice. You'll never fight for justice or inequality. And more than that, imagining heaven lets the rich off the hook. The rich will never sacrifice because they can say to the poor, oh, just live a good life now and you've got heaven waiting for you. It'll be okay. And then there's others that would say, unless... Unless we realize that this is the only world that we'll ever have, we'll never take care of it. You see, there's this pejorative way of talking about Christians. Of saying that Christians are so heavenly minded that they're of no earthly good. And yet, John, the Apostle John says no. The Apostle John says no. He says it is the most heavenly-minded people that are of the most earthly good. He says, you need to imagine heaven. And then John lays out this beautiful vision of a world where the curse has been removed from Revelation chapter 21, beginning at verse 10. I invite you to close your eyes or read along whatever you'd like to do as I encourage you to imagine these words. You know, we were actually going through this in my life group. And they asked, so how do we read this? And I at first gave this explanation. Well, you kind of got to know a little bit about Scripture. And you got to be careful because there's a lot of strange things in here. And then I rethought and said, no. You need to read it fast. Get the big picture. That it's about Jesus winning and all the beautiful things that he has in store for us. Don't get caught up in all the little details. But see the beautiful picture that our God paints for us. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious stone, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, 
as long as it was wide. He measured the city with a rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and as high as it is long. The angel measured the wall using human measurement and it was 144 cubits thick. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh crystallite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. And the gates of the city were twelve pearls. Each gate was made of a single pearl. The great city, street of the city was pure gold, as pure as transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it its light. And the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no more night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of water of life, as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit in every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. We see this beautiful picture of heaven. A heaven that that comes down, uh, like Mike talked about last week, that's an inheritance, that it's a gift from God to us. And that heaven that comes down, that, that means it's for the healing of the world, that God is ultimately going to heal this world. And the biblical picture of this heaven is not an alternate reality, a different place, but rather God's reign of healing that comes to earth, that we see come to earth in Jesus, but will ultimately come to us on the last day when Christ returns. But what is John trying to get us to do in these words? He's trying to get us to, uh, to imagine, to, to think about, to ponder, to wonder as we look into these words. For example, verse 21. Has anybody ever heard of gold that's clear as glass? Clear gold, right? I remember I was talking with Lindsay about this last night. She got to this part and she just kind of went, Weird. Because it's something that it's, 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 it's so great, and he's saying it's so great, and yet at the same time, it's beyond. It's beyond anything that you can imagine or, or think about. And then in verse 16, he says, The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. And he measured the city with a rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length. All right, so here's the question. Which state is approximately the size of the city that comes down from heaven? We're thinking like Rhode Island, Connecticut. What do you guys think? 
kind of ponder a little, maybe, maybe Colorado, a little bit bigger. That's pretty huge, right? Like, wow, a city the size of Colorado, that's kind of nuts. If you measured it out, and it's not a perfect square, so that's why I didn't give you a picture of it, because you pick on me for my lack of being able to draw a perfect square. It would be from Orange to Vancouver to Winnipeg, which is just to the west of the Great Lakes, down to Shreveport, Louisiana, and back to Orange. That's the size of the city that comes down. Beyond our imagination. Just incredible, unfathomable. That's 15 states and parts of other states. What God has in store for us is just unreal. And so he's calling God's people to imagine, to to think about how great it could be, and then realize that it's even greater still. And then in verse 17, the angel measured the wall using human measurement, and it was 144 cubits thick. One version says, and he measured it with the measurement of an angel, the cubit, and that's the same as a human measurement. And so then what John is now saying is that this is there, and it's not a mirage. It's not a vision. It's a reality. This, what God has in store for you, is something real and something tangible, something that is going to come down. And then in verse 21, he says that the 12 gates were 12 pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. And that's, of course, where we get the idea of pearly gates, but I've never heard of a pearl being carved into a gate. I've never imagined a pearl being carved into a gate. So what is John getting at there? Now, there's this parable that Jesus tells where he says there is this man hunting precious stones and in this field, in this patch of dirt, this worthless dirt, this man finds a pearl of, of priceless value and so he goes and he sells everything in order to buy that dirt. Because in that dirt was that pearl. And so what John's telling us is that so precious is entrance into this city that it is worth any cost. A cost that only the very Son of God could pay for you. Jesus sold everything, all of himself, in order to purchase you. So that that you could belong to him and so that that city that is coming for us can be our greatest possession. Because our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. See, the thing I believe is whether you believe in heaven or you don't, you do. Because heaven is, is written on our hearts as people. And we're all, all searching for it. We're, we're looking for something that can fill that void in our hearts and our lives. Something big to grab hold of. C.S. Lewis said, Heaven is the music that you are born remembering. You see, his people are kind of hope-shaped people. Ever notice that life seems a little better when you've got a vacation coming up that's on the calendar? When a graduation is coming up and you're looking forward to the next step, the new life. And so when something is on the horizon, we get a little bit excited about whether it's a wedding or a graduation or, or something that, that there's there to look forward to. And then when we have to cancel it, 
It's one of the great letdowns that we face, isn't it? Or we get there and we realize that it wasn't all that we hoped it would be. See, our our problem as people sometimes, though, is that we attach that hope of of heaven, that, that deep hope, that deep yearning that's within us to ordinary things. Uh, to a spouse, uh, to a career, to a child. And, and the thing that you find out is that you can marry the perfect spouse and find that you're still hungering and longing for love. You can have the, the perfect career and discover that you're still not happy. And we wonder what's going on with our children. With our children where we kind of pour all of our energy into them. We're looking for our hope. We're looking for something great that we can draw out of them that can give our life meaning and purpose. And then all the while, our imagination starts to run wild in our back of our minds. And we deal with fear and we deal with worry. What is fear and worry? It's us imagining the possibilities Imagining the things that could go wrong. Imagining the floor dropping out. Imagining what could go wrong and our future wouldn't be as we envisioned it. And so John challenges us to imagine something different. You know, there was a time in my life I was a runner. There's some people here that may be able to identify with this. And when I started thinking about this, I can still remember that stupid course. The, the chunky patches of grass and the hard ground. I had to go back and find out what the course was because it was driving me nuts. I could picture the pencil-like trees. Brand new golf course out in the wind-blown plains, frozen tundra of Minnesota. Adrian. And it was where our section meet was going to be. And I knew it was coming. And it was a big race that we were all gearing up for. And so we went out early in the season, we saw this course, and our, our coach told us, okay, walk the course, run the course, remember the course, commit it to memory, and imagine it. Imagine it going up to the race to prepare yourself to know exactly what you're going to do. And for me, there was this, this little twerp, Brett Franz and about yay tall that I was running against. And the day of the race was like the worst day ever, frozen. Wind was blowing in 30-mile-an-hour gusts. So what do you think this little guy did? He ran behind me the entire time, little punk. And I knew exactly what he was going to do. We were going to get through the mile mark and going to settle into pace. And he was going to try and leave me in the dust. So I knew at that point in time I had to stay with him because if I didn't stay with him, I was done. But I ran the race of my life. I stuck with the kid the whole way through, and I've been dreaming about this race, and I get to the finish line, and I accomplished all that I've been working on for at least the past three months. And then the thing that shocked me was the incredible, empty feeling that I felt. When I should have been feeling like, hey, this is great, this is wonderful, I've done what I sought out to do, I tasted and I found out that it wasn't really what I was hoping for. You see, I had taken a greater hope and put it in that hope. Lindsay said that, you know, this can kind of be like weddings sometimes, like marriage. You find your spouse and you put all this planning into this wedding. And then you get there and you get through it and where is the happily ever after? It's just kind of working out and figuring out life together. I said, ah, that's not me. And it wasn't that empty for me. See, for me after that race, it was just empty. 
And so there's some truth to that, that, that in, in life, you have these big goals, these big hopes, and you get there, and it doesn't taste like you what you thought it would. So C.S. Lewis wrote, We find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy. The most probable explanation is that we were, that we were made for another world. We need heaven. We need to know that one day God is going to come down and, and make everything right, that he's going to set everything right, that one day that curse is going to be removed, that curse that plagues our bodies, our hearts, our relationships. We need to know that it's going to be taken away. And to answer John Lennon, yeah, it's possible for you to live a heroic life, a life of sacrifice, to give up all you've got in order to serve others. But why should you give up all you have if it's all you'll ever have? And so if you do that, you're doing it in spite of your beliefs, not because of them. This message that John gave the early Christians, it gave them hope and it gave them strength to live through suffering that we couldn't even imagine. So how do we get it? How do we imagine heaven? How do we put it on our hearts in such a way that it, it shapes our lives and allows us to live heroic lives, lives of sacrifice that people look at and say, what's different with them? So this past week, I've been trying. Actually, the past couple of weeks, when we've been digging into Revelation, I've been falling asleep reading it, waiting for the crazy dreams that somebody in my life group told me would come. Needless to say, I'm still working at imagining heaven. But it reminds me of a couple of stories I'd like to share with you. One is of my friend's wife, Heather. Heather had cystic fibrosis. They got married in December, and she died in April. And so around this time of year, around Easter, I always think of her. And I remember a time when Jeff and I were sitting outside getting ready to light a campfire and Heather leans over and kisses him goodnight and says, I can't wait until I can sit out by the fire with you idiots. And she walked inside and I said, it's not that late. Student teaching doesn't start that early. What's the deal? And Jeff said, she can't breathe the smoke. The smoke is like poison to her lungs. She's looking forward to that day when one day she can sit beside us and enjoy the ordinary things of life. It also reminds me of a story I read about Joni Erickson Tata. You may or may not know of her, but she was in an accident at 17. And in this accident, she was paralyzed from the neck down. She became a, a quadriplegic and as she's trying to, to come to terms with what happened to her, she'd go to church, and at her church, at a certain part in the liturgy, every Sunday, the priest would get up and ask everyone to kneel. And every time he did that, that would drive home the fact that she was stuck in a wheelchair. Another time at a convention, the speaker got up in front of everybody and urged everyone to kneel. And in her book, Heaven is Your Real Home, she wrote, With everyone kneeling, I certainly stood out 
and I couldn't stop the tears. But those tears weren't because of self-pity. She was crying at the sight of hundreds of people on their knees before God because it was so beautiful, a very picture of heaven. And she continued weeping at another thought. Sitting there, I'm reminded that in heaven, that I'll be free to jump up and dance and kick and do aerobics and sometime before all the guests are called to the banquet table at the wedding feast of the Lamb, the first thing I plan to do on resurrected legs is drop to grateful, glorified knees. I will quietly kneel at the feet of Jesus. I, with shriveled hands and bent fingers, atrophied muscles and gnarled knees, and no feeling from the shoulders down, will one day have a new body, light and bright and clothed in righteousness, powerful and dazzling. Can you imagine the hope that resurrection gives someone like me? Amen.